Friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the Eighth Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the Eighth Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. Well, I want to greet you in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. This is the New New Testament reading out of the Revised Common Lectionary. And I also invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word for us today. I told uh, Banning that I was going to begin in verse 8, so he prepared it on the wall. But I'm going to start with verse 6, and then Drew, you can follow me after that, okay? So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only in the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. You are witnesses. And so was God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a letter that came from Pastor Paul to his congregation in a, little, in a town called Thessalonica. As I said a few weeks ago, 1 Thessalonians, this letter is the oldest, or what we could say, the earliest of our New Testament writings. It's, it was written earlier than Romans or Matthew or 1 and 2 Peter. It was written right around 51 AD, just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus. The movement, the Christian movement was spreading. People were hearing about the good news of God's plan for renewal all over creation, and this was set into motion. And Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, were transformed by this message. They began to carry it with them inside of themselves, and, and, they, and they took it wherever they went, proclaiming this good news to whoever would listen. Now, many of the folks that they talked to did listen. And because they heard this word, they experienced a change of heart and mind themselves. But others, others on the other hand, heard that Paul and his companions were teaching this gospel, and it was one other than the one that Rome proclaimed. Paul, Silas, and Timothy proclaimed the gospel of this incoming king, one that had been inaugurated and is now called the savior of the world. And this disrupted everything about everybody's lives because you need to know that these three were not the first to come into Thessalonica with a message of good news and telling the people that now there was a savior on the scene. Every time 
the emperor came to town, he would ride into town with a large motorcade. People would stand on the street corners and hold up signs while the secret service protected him. Many of those people, as he came into town, would bow. And all of them, all of them were trying to get a peek of him. Now, when the king or the emperor came to town, they had a word for this. It was an event, and that event was called a parousia. We've talked about this. We talked about this just a couple of of weeks ago. The people, there in that town, they hoped for the emperor's arrival. They wanted the emperor to come visit their town. They wanted a parousia because if Caesar came to town, it was as if they were visited by a god. Gifted with divine wisdom, honored for his stature, revered because favor had been poured into him before his birth. Legends said that at his touch, people were healed and his presence, just his mere presence could fix their most dire situations. So the people anticipated and waited for his arrival. They waited for a parousia and they anticipated his arrival meant that salvation was coming to the town or the city or the village. His arrival, simply by him being there, was good news. Because Caesar called all the shots. Caesar held all the power. The way the world spun was actually directed by and determined by Caesar. People, these people who were shaped by poverty and fear and violence were told that when Caesar came to town, their hopes would be realized. But it was a sham. It was all smoke and mirrors. It was a lie. Caesar was just a wizard behind a curtain pulling all the strings. Caesar was the cause of their poverty. Caesar incited their fear. He was the one who carried out the violence. So it was probably surprising to the Thessalonians when Paul and his companions entered town proclaiming good news because they didn't come with an entourage or a motorcade. There was no secret service. Paul and his companions come into town. They come into town. Here he comes. Paul comes into town with a couple of buddies after they had been illegally beaten in a a Philippian prison. And under the gun, and now on the run, they enter into Thessalonica, where they encounter people that have been shaped by that Caesar way, that Caesar narrative of poverty and fear and violence. And these people heard a new good news. They heard Paul's message of good news that in the poor carpenter's son, Jesus, God has decided to save save the world. Not in a person on a throne, but Jesus, rather, his crucifixion and then his subsequent resurrection and ascension is the very picture of how God was going to renew and remake their lives and then all of creation. And Paul said, "All, all this world All this world would be completed and all this would be completed in its fullness when Christ, who is the new king of the new kingdom, would come again. And then Paul said, and when he comes, it's not just going to be a parousia. When he comes, it's going to be the parousia. And the Thessalonians, they bought into this message. They took it in and they received it as their own. They gave themselves over to this message. They believed that it truly was a message of good news to them, but now they found themselves in a bit of a mess. They found themselves in a problem because they expected that this new king of this new kingdom was going to show up in their lifetime and complete what had been started. But this king, 
hadn't arrived yet. And that was a real problem because Caesar doesn't like anyone, anyone calling anyone other than him Lord or King or Savior. So the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, they started getting killed. The ones who were shaped by poverty and fear and violence were now feeling the wrath of the one who was in charge of those things. And so in this exchange of letters, the Thessalonians were asking this really important question. How shall we wait? Or maybe how shall we live until the parousia? Well, we said this last week, but it must be noted again. This is not our mail. These are not our letters. We were, we, 21st century people at 8th Street, were not in the mind of Paul or Silas or Timothy when they wrote this note to the Thessalonians. However, I think this is still a good question for us. How should we wait or, or live until the parousia? After all, what we say every single week here at the 8th Street Church is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We're not too different than the Thessalonians. Like them, we too are people shaped by poverty, fear, and violence, whether we know it or not. To be an Oklahoman is to be shaped by that story, whether it's the Trail of Tears or the Land Run, stolen property, red line districts, the bomb, who has oil rights, school integration, open carry laws, patriarchy, domestic violence, drug addiction. This is our narrative. And we're not the only ones who have been shaped by this narrative. Israelis are being shaped in this narrative. Palestinians are being shaped in this narrative. Ukrainians are being shaped in this narrative. The Chinese are, Ethiopians are, Egyptians are, Afghans are, and the list goes on and on. And whether we are of the Christian religion or not, to walk in this very space, to be a citizen of this planet, is to be shaped in that way and by the Caesar narrative. So for those of us who are longing for a different way, who may have bought into the story that Paul tries to tell, it's important for us to ask this question, how shall we wait or live until the parousia? Now, I know a lot of people who think thinks this means, and, and I used to think this way as well, that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended as if he went on vacation to go visit dad, and until Jesus comes back, we're left to our own devices here in this space between the ascension and the second coming. And in the meantime, what we need to do is we need to have really good behavior. In between these two places, I actually drew a picture of this. Drew, why don't you put that up? I drew a picture of, here it is, the resurrection, everybody. I drew that picture this morning. And then there is the second coming right there, the parousia. And so in the meantime, the question is, is how do we wait in the in-between? Go ahead. That's me. How do we wait in the meantime? Well, I've thought that what this meant is that in the meantime, we need to have good behavior. In the meantime, we need to be nice. We need to be pure. We need to mind our manners. We need not smoke or drink or watch rated R movies. After all, if, we would, if he would return in our lifetime, we sure don't want to get our hand caught in the cookie jar. In the 90s and the early 2000s, because of Y2K and 9-11, evangelicals assumed, like the Thessalonians, 
that the parousia was going to happen at any moment. I mean, it was the turn of the millennium. Here it comes. And many said that the way to live until the parousia is to ask, what would Jesus do? We had these bumper stickers in the back of our car. We wore these bracelets, WWJD. And then we would, we would do it as if we would do what we thought Jesus would do, as if Christianity is simply about ethics. For many years, my mindset was that in this in-between time, I thought that the expectation of God while we were waiting was this, be good and don't mess up by caving under pressure and keep it up until I send my son back from vacation. And if I find out that you screw this up and I catch you doing something that you're not supposed to do, then I'm gonna be mad. So live in this rotten world on your own until I get to it. WWJD. That sort of approach, just to ask what Jesus would do in any particular situation, when life is so serious and what's happening in the world is so serious, all that seems just a little bit empty to me. The fact of the matter is this, the truth is this, in my most honest moments, I need to confess to you that on my own, I am utterly incapable, incapable of living the Jesus way in my own strength. I just can't do it. The truth is that I have been shaped. We all have been shaped in the call and the narrative of Caesar. So here we are. Put it back up if you would, Drew. Here we are, that last picture. Post-resurrection, pre-second coming, and we're here in the in-between, in the middle of these two crisis, crises moments. And we're left to navigate a world of chaos and crisis on our own. And as I was thinking about this, questions started to come to me. Why would God leave us here in the in-between space on our own? More than that, why would God insist we do something that we are incapable of doing or live in a way that we are incapable of living? Here we are, and here the Thessalonians are, and I think they're asking the exact same question. Here they are in the in-between, waiting in the in-between on their own, just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And so now, here we are, along with the Thessalonians. They're dead and gone now, but we recognize that they did, that Jesus came, died, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and we're all just trying to have to deal with Caesar and his world all on our own, trying our best by our own efforts not to screw it all up. This is the way I thought about this for a really long time. But then I started to read Paul's mail. I started to read Paul's mail to the Thessalonians, but I started to read Paul's mail to the other churches as well. And that's not how he understands this at all. So listen to this. As a Jew that was brought up in the world of the Old Testament, Paul read the scriptures and he saw in them that the way that God's spirit was at work in the world was certainly in creation. If you just read the Old Testament, you'd look and you'd say, well, God's spirit was at work in creation. And then if you continue to read the Old Testament, and Paul was raised in this, he was educated in this, he said the spirit of God was also uh, in God's sightings called miracles. And then he could also see that God's spirit most often was experienced as it came to the people through prophetic words or through the prophets. The prophets would call people back to obedience and, and right living. And Paul, a Jewish person reading the Old Testament, having the Old Testament scriptures would say, 
the Spirit of God is in creation, and these things called miracles, and then in the prophet's words. In the New Testament, however, that same Spirit began to work in a new kind of way. The Spirit was still experienced by the people in creation and in miracles and in the prophetic word, but then it started to be experienced by individuals. Individuals like in the Gospel of Luke, Elizabeth and Zechariah, when at a very old age, they were, they were able to feel that they had been mysteriously filled, even in their own bodies, by the one that they had not seen. Then, after Jesus was born, and he began to preach and teach, the first followers of Jesus, including Paul, and then Christians ever since, have testified to an experience whereby they were able to feel, and they, they said, we've been able to be to be filled by the one that they had seen. Which stands to reason because Jesus, he didn't promise that we would be left to our own devices. He promised the believers in Acts that he would never leave them alone. He promised that he would send someone to help them. And he called this one the helper. Which means that Jesus, even in the in-between, has not left us to our own devices as we try to navigate this living in the broken world thing as we wait for him to come back. In fact, it's not that we're without God in this in-between space. On the contrary, Paul believed that the Jesus that had been with those, uh, those earliest believers in person was now the Jesus that was now with them in spirit. And he gave them this new kind of mysterious power that was antithetical to poverty and fear and violence, that was antithetical to that narrative that previously had power over them. Now, this group of people were experiencing something totally new and God in a totally new way. The way that they talk about it in the New Testament is this. There was an infilling of God's spirit within them even in their own bodies. And Paul said he had experienced the same sort of thing. And this, this is what he wanted for the Thessalonians. This is what he was writing to them about and we just read about. His Jewish education taught him that God showed up in, in creation and infrequent miracle events and in prophetic words. But now his eyes, along with his mind and his heart, were open to something brand new. He now had a new heart of love and new eyes that could see and new ears that could hear. He had a new mind and he said, it's like I have the mind of Christ. Paul believed that the same spirit that was active in the Old Testament, that was active in creation, that was active in miracle and in events and in prophetic words, it was all culminated and all came together in a single moment and then was put on display in a single world-altering, cosmos-shaking event. It was like the shot that was heard around the world. He said it all came together in the crucifixion. And the Savior died, and as the Savior died, the world could see on display this amazing act of love and this amazing power within the one who hung on the cross, who in the Spirit and by the Spirit was miraculously enabled to say, not my will, but yours be done. And Paul began to realize that that same Spirit that was in creation and events 
and a prophetic word, and then in crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, that same spirit that was present in the person of Jesus has been offered by Jesus to those who are willing to receive it. And those who are willing to receive this gift find that even in the in-between, they are not left to their own devices, but rather those who live in the in-between Those who live between resurrection or ascension and the second coming, they find that Jesus is actually extra present. You know, Caesar's Caesar's kinship, kingship extended to the corners of the known world. But by giving us his spirit and by being present with us, God's kingship, even in the present, even in the in-between, extends to every corner of the earth and beyond to all the known places and all the unknown places. And if we trust him and we invite him and receive the gift of his spirit, his presence even extends to every single corner of our lives, the known places and the unknown places. Jesus gave us his very spirit that is now present with us, that fills us, and by this infilling, a change in us, an actual change in us occurs. It's a mysterious change that happens in us. It is a deep change. It's a healing change. Those of us that have been traumatized by brutal legalism or bad theology or just crappy church people in general, well, that same, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you ready to heal you and resurrect you and aliven you. John Wesley, who's our theological forefather, said that that sort of healing, it has far-reaching implications. With the help of the Spirit of God, we're able to push away the shame that holds us down and keeps us from being us, that keeps us from, from being who we were meant to be. And what happens is there is a change of affection, affections and loves that happens in us. It's a change of will. It's a means of grace that enables us and empowers us to love our neighbor when it's on other, any other account impossible to do so and emboldens us to live and pray the prayer of Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. Not because we're capable of doing it, but because the power of the spirit of Jesus has taken residency even within us. It's even more than that, Paul says. When we're filled with God's spirit, it is an inherent and an immediate connection to Jesus himself. You are not alone, even as you wait. That's why Paul celebrates in other letters. First to the Romans, he says this, for from him and through him and for him are all things, meaning he is the here, there, and everywhere. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then to the Ephesians, he said this, you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And each week, Landon just invited us to say it because every week we say that this is what we want. We say that we want this infilling of the Spirit when we say we are not all the same but we are all ready for transformation. And this transforming work of God, this transforming work of God in Christ by his spirit opens us up to the mysteries of God. But I need to let you know, 
you need to be open-minded. And you need to be willing to receive this infilling gift. Most people think that Christians are actually closed-minded or narrow-minded. But the work of the Spirit in a person's life actually means the opposite. To be filled with the Spirit of Christ is to have the mind of Christ. And to have the mind of Christ means we need to be open-minded. After all, God cannot be contained. And And Jesus shows us God is this infinite mystery that is to be explored. Our our measly attempts through dogma and doctrine can make it so that we actually shrink God down, minimize to the point of where we can control God. But a small God, a a minimized God, God minimized to our understanding and our will is really no God at all. But a God that is extra present, a God that is extra expanding, forever loving, who begins this work, his good work by filling us, who fills us so that we might be enabled to pray the prayer of Jesus, the prayer that is impossible, not my will, but yours be done, that is a God that we should consider. Because when we open our minds and we receive the gift of the Spirit offered to us by Jesus, we're able to consider now the possibilities when it all seemed to be impossible. We're able to consider what seems to be impossible that God could change our affections and loves. That we're not left to our own devices, but now we live under the Spirit's guideship and help. That God has actually placed a call on each and every single one of us to share in God's make, as God makes the world into God's world. It was impossible before, but now it's possible with the mind of Christ and the presence of the Spirit. That there might be purpose for us, that by God's Spirit, We'll know what to do, where to go, how to hear, and and how to live out God's call. It was once impossible, but now it's possible. That healing of our traumas, it just might be possible. That our shame could be shelved, and that our sins could be forgiven. And, And that the transformation and the healing that happens in us becomes now not just what happens in us, but it becomes a picture for what God wants to do throughout all of creation. Oh my, that's a good story. That's a really good gift that Paul offers the Thessalonians. When I read this portion of the letter, I want to tell you the truth. I can't help myself. This is a a pastoral letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, but I can't help it. I know it's not my mail, but, but I can't help but see myself in Pastor Paul's shoes as he writes this. And I can't help but see you as the Thessalonians. I see it when I read this as if Pastor Banning and Pastor Hope and Pastor Andrea and I, and we've talked about this. We talked about this this week in staff meeting. When we read this and we talked about it, it, it was as if we were writing this letter to you with all of our hopes and all of our loves and all of our dreams crammed into these few verses. If we wrote this letter to you, this section of the letter to you, with all of this dreaming that we have, this is how we would write it. It would say something like this. Dear brothers and sisters of the 8th Street Church, we, your pastors, this little motley crew, we've loved you so much that we're not only trying to bring you the message of good news, but we have given you our own lives as well. We find that some days we hope for you more than what you hope for yourselves. 
And we pray that your minds would be open so that you would know all of the God possibilities that await you. As your pastors, we've done everything we possibly can. Like a good mother would for her own children, we've worked, we've sacrificed, we've given. We've experienced personal hardships that you might not know so that you would know the love of God in your own lives. And the sacrifice that we've made on your behalf has been worth it. We've never tried to burden you, but instead we've tried to be faithful in public and in private because we believe that the gospel of God is so good and so wonderful and so life-altering that we don't want you to miss out on it. You're our witnesses. And more than that, as God is our witness, we have tried to live with integrity before you. We're not perfect, but we've perfectly, we've tried to be perfectly ourselves as we've done life with you, to practice what we preach, to be faithful when, uh, when we're before you and away from you so that we might be examples of you who believe in this redemptive story. And this is all so that you might perfectly be yourselves as well. You know that we've been fair to you. Dealing with you like a good father would try to do for his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you so that everything God, so that you might be everything God has called you to be, so that you might experience everything that God intends for you and for the world to your benefit and God's glory. And every single day, and we say this sincerely, we thank God for you because you have, you who have heard this story and received it, which came from us, but didn't really come from us. It came from God's spirit. So here's what we want you to know. Know that the same spirit is at work within all of you who believe. And in faith and in hope and this message of love, we send this to your pastors, Andrea, Banning, Hope, and Chris. So the question becomes, how shall we wait until the parousia? The answer is simple. And it's an invitation to you. We open our minds. We open our minds. A mind ready for transformation is a humble mind. A mind willing to learn and change and respond to new truths and for information. And how shall we wait for the Perusia? We open our hearts to the Spirit's work within each one of us. Each as individuals, but we also open up to our community. And we want it for our community here as well. So that it might be possible for us to say, with the Spirit's help, God, not my will, but yours be done. This is what Paul wanted for the Thessalonian believers. And frankly, it's what I want for you as your pastor. It's what I want for our little church. It's what I want for Midtown. It's what I want for Oklahoma. And as I look around the world, it's what I want for this world. So before you come to this table, I'd like you to take some time and consider, have I ever been willing to invite God's spirit into my own life? And have I ever been willing to receive the gift of the Spirit that has been offered to me by Jesus himself? Have I ever opened up my mind and even my own heart to receive the Spirit's healing, to allow myself to be under his authority, his goodness, and his grace? To be willing to say, have I ever been willing to, have I ever been willing to say with his help, not my will for my own life, but yours be done. I'd like you to consider these questions as you come to the Lord's table. The invitation to come to the Lord's table is an invitation to receive all that is good and all that comes from God. The very best of what God has is offered to you by Jesus at his table. So uh, by his authority, I invite you to his table as well. But I want to make sure 
and I want to point this out. I want you to ask these questions before you come. Because coming to this table is a way of praying, not my will, but yours be done. It's a way of praying, God, I receive this gift of your spirit that you offer to me in its fullness. It's a way of praying, I'm willing to receive all the healing and all the goodness that you have for me. And so before you come to this table, consider those questions. This table uh, is set before you, framed within a story. Jesus at dinner took the bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood, and whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This is Jesus' table. All who are open to the Spirit's work, you're welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so if this is your first time, I want to let you know our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but I invite you to come down the center aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We are not just taking these elements into our bodies. We are being filled with the very Spirit of God Himself. So uh, perhaps on your way down, uh, if you've been baptized, you want to dip your finger into the baptism font. It's a remembrance of your baptism so that you might know that uh, even in this crazy world when things seem, seem shaky, you are held fast by the God that is present in your life. So when you come down, I want you to listen to one of these servers. Allow them to serve you. Listen to what they say, then dip the bread into the cup and be grateful. And then you're welcome to eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, just wave at Pastor Andrea and she would love to come and serve the elements to you. So friends, when you're settled with these questions, you are welcome to come to the Lord's table to receive all of the good things that he has to offer you. So friends, when you're ready, please come. Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.